Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, this is Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, and I'm here with Scott Turner, who's the author of the book Purpose and Desire, which is very interesting, and I think it expresses a lot of latent feelings that a lot of people have about the bio, about biology and the life sciences that um, that purpose in nature has been given short shrift. And, um, you know, and when I read this book, it was like, well, you know, he, he is merely calling out the fact that the emperor has no clothes, that the reductionist view of things is continuing to not work. And, um, and so, Scott, I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, welcome and congratulations on getting this book out there. Uh, thanks very much, Perry. It's, uh, it's great to be here. And uh, I think there's uh, quite a bit of, that you and I have in common with some of your views on Evolution 2.0 and your, uh, and your <clears throat> excuse me, recognition that, you know, there really is kind of a middle way in all this that has, has been sorely neglected over the past uh, several decades, actually. Well, let's let's start with the first time I ever met you, which was at Cornell uh, at a conference there. Um, you were telling me about termites, yes. and I've I've seen the ter- I, I've been to Mozambique and seen these huge things. I mean, they're just unbelievable. Like the first time you see them, like you, you'll do a double take. You're driving in the car, like. What was that? Okay. Yeah. So what? Tell us about termites, and uh, eventually it gets to your book. But but uh, give us you know tell us a little bit about you and your termite stuff. Yeah, it is a bit of a, a, a circuitous path. You know, I I I was trained as a physiologist, uh, specifically a comparative physiologist. You know, interested in the ways that different kinds of uh, animals work, and and uh, the interest in termites uh, began. Uh, I literally just stumbled uh, across them. You know, I was uh, I was living in South Africa at the time. I had had a uh, research appointment at University of Cape Town, which had run out, and uh, and at the time, uh, I by that time I had acquired a, a, a family, uh, my wife uh, Debbie and uh, my oldest daughter Jackie, and I needed uh, some uh, I needed a job to be able to hold things together until I could land something more more permanent, and so I went up to a small college up near the uh, up near the Botswana border um, at, this was at the time when the homelands were still a political entity in uh, South Africa and I was up there with uh, time in my hands and uh, these termite bounds were all over the place and I started fiddling around with them and very quickly discovered that uh, the the uh, prevailing story for how these things worked was uh, completely wrong, and so that uh, ended up uh, occupying my time for about the next ten or fifteen years trying to figure out what actually was right about them. And and uh, along those lines, uh, you know, I I uh, started uh, having to think about uh, the way living things uh, are organized, think differently about that. Uh, uh, some uh, insights uh, came in about how uh, these things function as organisms. Uh, uh, they act in a coordinated way. Uh, those mounds that they build, for example, are actually lungs for the colony, which is located underground. You know, the, the termites don't actually live in those mounds. Uh, they build this uh, kind of as, as uh, infrastructure for their colony. And they've, and uh, through some quite amazing uh, behaviors, they've engineered this thing into a really well-designed lung that actually works very much the same way, uh, physically and physiologically, the way that our own lungs work which is uh, in other words with the the fractal um massive surface area like much bigger surface area is that is that the idea of what you're uh that's pretty much it you know that's that's a that's an important part of it you know but uh the function of our own lungs is uh, is actually fairly complicated it's not just a matter of breathing in and breathing out there's all kinds of interesting uh interactions between diffusion and and bulk movements of air in our own lungs (laughs) for example and something very very similar to 
that happens in these termite colonies. So in addition to there being some really interesting similarities in morphology, you know, the fractal, the fractal uh, uh, morphology of the tunnels inside the uh, mound being part of it, but it boils down even to uh, details of function, which uh, again, as I say, has been something that has boggled my mind actually ever since we, you know, actually sorted out how this, uh, how this whole amazing system works. Could you give just like a, a brief idea of what you went into this field and you found that a whole set of assumptions were wrong and you figured out what is really going on? Can you, could that be reduced to a simple uh, explanation at all? Um, I'll try to. You know, they, they, they're, uh, at the time, there were really two models for how these things worked. Uh, uh, one was that, uh, that the mound acted kind of like a heart-lung machine, and, and the uh, colony, um, which is located underground, generates heat uh, like any organism would, and this supposedly set up a, 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 a convection cell within the, within the mound that helped uh, exchange uh, heat and oxygen and water vapor and those kinds of things. That's one model. And the other model, uh, and this applies to uh, termite mounds that have chimneys, is that, you know, wind blows and it draws this uh, bulk flow of air through the, through the colony, just like a, uh, a, a say, a, a wind-driven uh, wind catcher in our own buildings might drive a bulk flow of air through uh, our own houses. And that reliance on bulk flows of air, uh, either driven by the heat of the colony or driven by winds, uh, only encompasses about a, a third of, of, of how this whole thing works. And uh, in our own lungs, for example, when you, when you breathe in and you breathe out, that's a kind of a bulk flow that, that, uh, you know, that flows tidally. It flows in and then it flows out. But then at levels deeper than this, you start to get some interesting interactions between the bulk flows uh, that are driven by muscles, in our case, or by winds or by, or by uh, uh, metabolic heat production in the case of the termite colonies. And beyond that, you start getting into uh, an entirely different mechanism of gas exchange, uh, one that's dominated by so-called uh, diffusion. And the way our own lung works, uh, own lungs work, uh, uh, it depends upon the interaction between this bulk flows of air and the diffusion gas exchanges. And it's a fairly, you know, complicated and quite sophisticated thing, but it's, but, but the very same kind of thing happens in uh, these termite colonies. So, for example, one of the things that termites do is that they 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 really work hard to prevent any kinds of flows of air within their nest where that is where they live and so there's there's your first point of illogic you know why would these termites build these devices to power bulk flows of air through their nests when you know the reason for living basically for these termites is to prevent that very thing and 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 so uh, you know that's 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 one clue that uh, that tells you that you know the models for uh, how these things were supposed to work are are are, are completely wrong basically they're they're missing a, a big part of the physiology and a lot of the work that we've done um, is to uh, try to actually measure flows of air. You know, we we do uh, fairly standard. Uh, we did fairly standard uh, techniques in respiratory physiology, for example, where we applied them to termite mounds and colonies. And 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 the 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 bottom line of that was the is that the flows of air between the nest and the mound and the atmosphere that everyone was predicting just had to be there actually weren't. In fact, they they uh, they, they those, those kinds of patterns of airflow were almost never there. And and once we established that then you know the question became how is it that these termites actually build this thing and 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 you know this uh, this has led into some um into into quite a bit of study and and what we're what we call the swarm cognition of the of the termite colony you know you know each 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 termite uh, itself of course has a fairly limited range of sensory capabilities you know they're, they're blind uh, uh, they're kind of uh, soft bodied and these kinds of things but but together they're actually capable of some quite impressive uh, feats of, of construction. And, and so it's an interesting question, you know, how is it that, that the behavior of these individual termites collectively can produce uh, such a remarkable uh, thing? And, and I think that's uh, sort of what led me into some fairly radical um, uh, thoughts about, well, just what is it that's driving adaptation here? You know, uh, are these termites, you know, are they little robots that, uh, that behave 
according to uh, you know some kind of program, or are they actually cognitive uh, uh, living things? And and you know the, when you when you start appreciating that all of this thing, the adaptation of these termites to uh, some environments where they have no business living, you know, nevertheless they do live there uh, quite successfully. It's all a cognitive phenomenon, and that and that adaptation um, is you know is, is a cognitive process, and that's what enables these creatures to live in a variety of environments where they should not actually be living. And of course, when you start thinking about that, then you start getting into evolutionary adaptation and what's driving that, and and uh, that's uh, what led really to the to the basic theme in uh, purpose and desire, which is that you know cognition you know cognition is a phenomenon of living systems. It's not found anywhere else in the universe, and it's and it's unique living systems, and 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 that drives. Uh, not only the existence of uh, living things in the present, but it drives their evolution as well. And and uh, furthermore, because cognition, you know, is an is a, a universal phenomenon of life. You know, we we are cognitive beings. Termites are cognitive beings. But uh, cognition can occur in a variety of different contexts. You know, swarm cognition and the termites, for example, all the way down to bacterial mats and those kinds of things. And and you know, once you get there, then you know, evolution ceases to be something driven by random selection of genes. Uh, it's, it actually becomes right. a cognitively driven process. And, and, and that's the basic theme of the book, Purpose and Desire. And so, like, this termite thing was initially just you being extremely curious about something that wasn't even on your radar before. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. You know, as I said, I literally stumbled into these termites. My, my uh, principal research work uh, before then was, was the physiology of heat exchange and different kinds of uh, creatures, mainly because I was interested in temperature regulation. And so, and so we had done some some work on uh, blood flow and heat exchange in alligators, and this led to some uh, some uh, another uh, research question, which is uh, which is how the circulation of uh, bird embryos within their eggs actually influences and helps affect and control how heat is transferred between the brood patch of the incubating bird and the embryo itself. And that was the work I was doing at University of Cape Town. I was uh, that that work was very much uh, uh, in play there. But as I said, I I had to uh, you know for family reasons, I I I had to take a job in uh, kind of an academic exile, and I was there. I had time on my hands, and uh, these things were there. And uh, you know, gosh, you know, let's have a look. And that's literally how it happened. Wow. And, and uh, w- when you started doing that, um, what kind of reactions did you get from people that were more conventionally minded with the old theory? Uh, well, that was, that was an interesting, uh, interesting uh, lesson to me. You, you know, the, uh, um, th- this, 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 old model of how these things work you know it was they were promulgated by a very very famous and actually a very fine uh, Swiss entomologist named Martin Lucher and and as you may know the way things work in academia you have basically lines of descent you know and so you have this entire line of descent of academics who were basically disciples of Martin Lucher and and the um, the interesting thing about Martin Lucher's idea was that it was such a beautiful idea you know it it, it uh, it's, it, it, it was carried along literally for decades by the sheer beauty of it. But you know, one of the things that we we found out, we we, we tried very carefully to well the evidence uh, that we were gathering showed very clearly right away that martin lucher's model for how these termite mounds worked was incorrect and so we spent a lot of time trying to look into all the different assumptions that went into it and and we found that that, that basically there was there was uh, there, there there was nothing about the way the termite mounds worked that corresponded with martin lucher's model um, uh, to give, you know, you know to, to 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 give you an example you know this idea that the termite colony generates as heat and generates a circulation of air within the within the mound for example uh, that requires that the uh, that the nest be warmer than the mound you know that's 
just the way you know that makes the air more buoyant and circulates it. But we found just the opposite, actually. The uh, the nest is actually uh, uh, almost always cooler than the mound, and 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 so you know where's the mechanism there? You know that, and so we found that again and again in in, in every assumptions that we that, that we tested. And needless to say, this was not received well by this whole, um, uh, you know, array of disciples of, of Martin Lucier. And and, uh, uh, and so, yeah, I got quite a lot of pushback on that. And, uh, you know, as I, as I say, it was an interesting lesson, not only in the way that uh, science is organized uh, uh, socially, but also just the sheer power of a beautiful idea, you know, because Lucier's uh, idea was truly beautiful. And, and, uh, but unfortunately, it wasn't correct. So the the Lucier guys said that the purpose of the termite mount, uh, mound is X, but the purpose of the termite mound is really Y. Mm-hmm. So what was X and what is Y? Okay. Um, uh, the X meaning the mechanism? Is that what you're asking there? Well, Sure, that's good. Okay. Sure. All right. So um, uh, I don't know if you... Uh, uh, if if this is uh, uh, general knowledge, but and and I'm I'm going to be a little bit uh, uh, I'm going to engage in a little bit of stereotyping here, and 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 that is that German science has a very very um, uh, distinct way of looking at the world. You know, it, it's it's, mm. it's it's a it has a very strong streak of 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 uh, uh, romanticism in it. For example, uh, uh, this is primarily a result of the uh, influence of Goethe on on German science. And they're also very, um, very strongly mechanistic. You know, the Germans, are, no doubt about it, they're excellent engineers. And you know, not all of them, yes, obviously. You know, you, know, you know, this is a little bit of stereotyping. And, and so um, uh, uh, this is part of what helped the Lucier idea uh, gain such traction, you know, because, you know, think of it, you have this, uh, you have this system. It's comprised of mud. It's comprised of termites and, and, and all this. And yet it functions as as this organism you know which which is itself kind of a kind of a uh, an idea that's uh, that has uh, strong uh, uh, romantic roots in it as well and so there's that appeal and then you have this wonderful mechanism where 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 it just runs itself you know it's organized so that the heat produced by the colony generates this uh, generates this 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 uh, this motion of air the more excess heat that's produced the more vigorous the motion is so it's just kind of a self-regulating system and as i say you know it's just an absolutely beautiful idea uh, unfortunately um, almost completely wrong and and so uh, now uh, that's 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 the mechanism, and I think that's kind of the roots of it uh, as well. But there was another part of your question that you were curious. Well, so then, so then the correct understanding in, in really simplistic terms is, so what's really going on there? Uh, what's really going on is that the termites are actually are actively engaged all the time in, in uh, 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 adjusting the structure of this mound in order to capture uh, energy that's in the environment to power some kind of a physiological function. And, and so instead of having this 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 form that emerged from whatever the termites did that just functioned passively that is without any agency in there other than than the heat being produced by the colony uh, uh, now you have the active involvement of of of, uh, of cognitive agents and not only cognitive agents but purposeful agents you know we 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 uh, we we know uh, some of the ways in which these termites uh, and termite swarms interact cognitively with soils, with uh, flowing air, and these kinds of things. And and you know if you if you look at the um, at the way these uh, mounds behave. Um, they're not just structures, you know. They're 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 processes. Uh, the the, uh, the termites. Well, the the, the mound itself uh, is. It's been likened to a soil fountain, you know, a, a kind of a slow motion soil fountain. And and uh, of course, uh, you know, these things are exposed to the weather, to the rain, and they erode soil all the time. That's going to be breaking down the structure. But at the same time, the termites are continually moving soil up into it and remodeling it so that the form of the mound actually looks the same uh, even though it's being eroded and and uh, and you have soil being replaced but it's actually very dynamic and if you can see this if you if you do time-lapse uh, uh, imagery 
on these mounds. You know, they they change over you know from day to day and actually from month to month. And and the amount of soil that the termites uh, move to uh, make this happen is immense. You know, I I had one poor graduate student there whose task was to one year was to figure out just how much soil was being moved up into these mounds. And and I scarcely believe the result when I saw it. These these animals are moving 250 kilograms of soil. This is dry weight soil every year up through that mound. That's a, that's a, that's one fourth of a ton of soil that's being moved up uh, up through these things. And 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 because you have this balance of, of of soil being eroded and soil being replaced, you know you can get the form looking pretty much the same. But it's actually this very very dynamic uh, process. And part of that uh, 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 one of the results of that uh, dynamism of, of this mound is that it changes uh, its shape subtly and slowly in respect to uh, different kinds of environmental challenges and 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 in order for the, the this to happen, the termites have to be interacting continually and in a cognitive way with understanding what their environment is, uh, how it's affecting their uh, little world inside the mounds, ways in which you can uh, uh, adjust the the, uh, the structure so that the environment that termites are feeling comes into conformity with some with some ideal. I hate to, I, I hesitate to use that word, but with some kind of um, a notion that's inside the termites' brains, whether individually or uh, collectively, that, that, that our environment should be this way. And if it's not that way, we're going to be uh, manipulating this interface between ourselves and the outside environment to make it the way that it should be. And, and, and this is where the notion of uh, homeostasis starts to come in as a, as a, uh, uh, as a, as a, uh, a formative process as a more general process than we have typically uh, given it credit for in the modern world, and also as a process of adaptation, therefore uh, evolution. You know, there's two things, we'll get to evolution in, in just a second, but there, there's two things that this reminds me of. One of them is it reminds me of a corporation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, or a university, right? Yeah. Well, the, the thing itself is not alive, but it's, it's all these, you know, materials and parts and structures, and there's all these living beings that come in every day, and they move all the stuff around, yeah. and the thing really does take on a life of its own. I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of hard not to think of State University of New York, which is where you teach, yeah. as anything but uh, this living, morphing organism, not unlike a, you know, a termite mound. Uh, the other thing it reminds me of, there's this uh, really interesting book by Kevin Kelly called What Technology Wants. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it talks about technology the same way that you talk about termite mounds. Like, hmm. well, you know, there's just a certain way that airplanes seem to want to be. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Now, of course, uh, most of the time it's not really necessary for him to point out that it's the people making the airplanes a certain way and it's not the airplanes making themselves a certain way, but that with any particular technology, there are always certain grooves that it will fall into because somebody's trying purposefully and cognitively to get it to do something useful, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and so, and so Kevin, Kevin Kelly's book is all about how technology evolves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and you, you're, you're looking how this inanimate structure um, called a termite mound takes on this life of its own. Yeah. And, and you're like, hey, man, gig is up. Like, the, there's a purposeful <laughs> process going on here. Yeah. We cannot reduce this to just some thermodynamic, um, you know, maximizing the heat or, or it's, it's not that simple. And so, so uh, what, Oh, go, go ahead. Scott. No, 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 that's okay. Finish your thought. I was, uh, <clears throat> well, so, so to a couple things, and this brings us right into evolution because um, th- this, this, then uh, this connects me to, to, to something else. Um, you know, Dennis Noble's got this book dance to, the tune of life biological relativity uh, that just came out not long ago and he he talks about this idea of, of biological relativity which says there is no privileged point of causation or to, to put it in maybe more friend uh, user-friendly terms 
there isn't any one place where the cause the cause begins and the effect you know cascades down from there and there isn't any just one single goal of the organism that there there is a whole symphony of things that are going on and they all kind of work together and i think it's very significant that both he and you are physiologists and physiologists are like, well, I study termites, or I, I study the exchange of air, um, or, or I study hearts, which is the case with Dennis. Um, and, you know, a heart has a purpose of pumping blood, and we're not going to be shy about that. Like, that is what it does. So, so, so I think this gets, brings us right to the doorstep of what your book is ultimately about. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned that uh, this, this whole fraught issue of, of, of causation and effect, and, and, uh, and, and you know, the, this has been an ongoing issue in biology for, you know, I, I, I'll go so far as to say centuries, you know, you know just, yeah. what is, just what is cause and what's effect. And, and you know, as, as, as biology made its transformation in the early 20th century, into something that was a strictly mechanistic uh, uh, point of view that you know in in order to be a real science uh, biologists had to had to uh, build the way they think about the world in the ways that real scientists did you know physics physicists and chemists uh, and uh, uh, this this tendency has even been given a name by Ernst Meyer he calls it physics envy and kind of a you know kind of a humorous way to think about it but one of the things that has has done is that it's I think it, it has diluted us into thinking that we can we can sort out a, a, a cause and effect and 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 we're deluded into thinking about it because it is uh, a very successful way of thinking about it but only uh, with certain uh, very very limited questions and at certain very limited scales you know so for example if you're looking at how energy flows through the photosynthetic complex for example you know you can see a fairly clear chain of cause and effect going on there but when you look at what's happening actually in the plant itself then, you know, as, as uh, you mentioned, this whole issue of what's cause and what's effect starts to become uh, very uh, problematic. And, and this is one of the reasons why um, I argue that one of the uh, pernicious uh, tendencies in modern biology is that uh, this illusion that we can treat things, we can understand things like cause and effect, is, has basically alienated the science of biology from the phenomenon of life itself. And, and you know, it, it doesn't allow concepts like cognition, like intentionality. Uh, you know, we tend to cloak these things behind uh, weasel words like apparent intentionality or apparent design or these kinds of things. And, and you know, are we doing ourselves any service by, by taking those things which are arguably the, the essential aspects of living systems as compared to uh, physical systems? Are we doing ourselves any favors by, by basically hiding those things behind a, a, a cloak of deniability basically and 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 so uh, this is one of the uh, things that I'm hoping to correct and well I don't, I don't know if anyone will pay attention or listen to it but uh, it's one of the points I'm trying to make in this book which is that you know the science of life has 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 worked itself into a little bit of a philosophical pickle because it has ultimately alienated the study of life from life itself and and uh, and so that's one of the points that I uh, th this extends not only to function but it also extends to evolution as well. And you're not even suggesting that we shouldn't be trying to figure out cause and effect or anything like that. It's, it's not like anything anti-scientific going on here. You're just saying that the path of cause and effect is so much more complex and interactive that trying to sort of like reduce this to balls rolling down inclined planes or simple, just simple physics is, you know, Carl Woese, um, rock star biologist. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, he he lamented that 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 this physics envy was making biology into much less of a science than it actually was capable of being. 
Yeah, and you know, as I as I said, the, you can gain marvelous insights from from you know breaking things down into small parts and you know working out the details of of, of uh, you know where, where one atom goes compared to the next. You know, and and it, it can lead to some insights that can lead to some very useful things like new treatments or or pharmaceuticals or or things like this. But 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 ultimately, you know, are you studying life in that case or are you studying something else? Are you being an engineer? Or are you being a scientist, and and uh, you know one of the one of the ways of thinking about uh, uh, life that uh, was actually quite prevalent in the 19th century, uh, and we've tended to, to to lose it, is that is is this is this very idea that a living system is this collection of of agents, these collection of agents with purposefulness and with uh, uh, their own uh, uh, agendas of what they want want to be. And I'm using I, I know I use scare quotes there, but I'm actually I'm actually uh, uh, being quite deliberate in my Use of the word want, and um, and the, the, this this idea was something called the many little lives metaphor. The, 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 a, a, a a body, for example, acts in a very very coordinated fashion. The temptation is to think that well, I can figure out all the all the uh, programming and things like this that goes into this. But actually, an organism is is this ongoing process of of of, of uh, uh, ongoing negotiation and and compromise among the so-called called many little lives that that uh, that uh, composes an organism and and this kind of this kind of uh, uh, um, ongoing interactivity, this ongoing uh, active agency in, in 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 having a notion of what you should be, and then doing work to make that come into being, you know, that's the essence of intentionality, and that's something that we have really lost in in modern biology to a large extent. It's it's uh, still there, of course, you know, but it tends to occur in uh, in fields that uh, you know some of the more hardcore biologists regard as a bit squishy, you know, things like. Like uh, psychology and uh, and uh, those kinds of things, even merging into the arts and and uh, and other kinds of um, expressive um, uh, uh, disciplines, uh, you know, it, it's 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 really the this this focus on mechanism has really driven wedges between so many uh, ways of thinking that 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 should profitably be speaking to one another, and and you know the 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 bridge in my uh, view is to recognize that life is an intentional, purposeful phenomenon, and then the question becomes, you know, how do we fit that into some kind of scientifically credible way of of uh, interrogating nature? You know, because what's science after all? Science is basically a means of trying to get nature to tell us uh, what it's all about. You know, without yeah. bringing without bringing uh, uh, too much of our uh, of our own um, prejudices and predilections into it. You know, we're just trying to get nature to tell us what it's about. And uh, if you're ignoring the most important thing about living nature, then you're not going to have a very easy time at that. So where do you, where do you sense that this is headed? Like 10 or 20 years from now, what do you, what conversations do you think we could be having that are forbidden right now? Um, I think we can get away from from um, uh, what, what I think is a very destructive divide, and 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 you've mentioned this as well. You know, you, you know, if you look at the public discourse over evolution, for example, you know, it's it's really you know two warring camps that that uh, that, that that are basically have been, that basically have been chewing over the same bone since the beginning of the 20th century. And and you know, if you if you if you look at the issues that were at stake in the Scopes trial, for example. And you look at the issues that were at stake in the Dover, Pennsylvania uh, trial. It's the same arguments, and and you know, surely we have moved beyond that somehow. You know, you know, can't we move beyond that somehow? And and you know, uh, part of it is is uh, you have these radically different philosophical um, outlooks on life. You know, you have the strict Darwinians that uh, you know will admit no uh, purposeful agency at all, no matter whether it's from internal to the organism or or agency from an external source like the natural, you know, God basically, as the natural theologians uh, would say. And then you have, uh, you know, the, uh, um, and I don't want to say this is true for all religious people or all Christians, but uh, you have this hardcore uh, uh, notion that that cannot uh, admit that um, 
that uh, you know there, there there is mechanism and there is um, there, there there is a scientific way of 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 thinking about this and and neither side for you know for a variety of reasons uh, is bridging is is working to bridge that gap and and there are constructive areas where where those kind of things the, the, those different viewpoints can uh, collaborate you know so for example the uh, um, uh, if you look at how uh, cosmology has has evolved, for example, it's it's gone from you know the the kind of Newtonian uh, idea of the clockwork universe with the with the creator being just out there somewhere, you know, with with uh, with, with the entire universe just being turned in, in into this uh, into this uh, uh, mechanism. You know, if you if you look at how cosmology has has evolved, it's really gone away from that. And and as you get closer to the Big Bang, for example, you, you know, then 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 physics, uh, you know, really has to open up a a, a window for for uh, introducing um, a deity, for example, into our thinking about physics. And 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 you know, obviously, there'll be endless debate about what that means. It's ongoing, of course, but but right. but that's that. But but that space has opened up as result yes. of, of ongoing work in cosmology and and I'm kind of hoping that a, a similar kind of space will open up by by trying to bridge this gap between these two radically uh, opposed um, camps if you will you know so so um, you know what one of the arguments that, that I make in the book is that is that there is intelligence and there is design in the living world you know if you look at uh, if you look at at from from any any of many viewpoints you know you you simply cannot deny that life is a purposeful phenomenon that it has intentionality uh, that there is design involved and at this point you know you have to ask well where does that intelligence come from and and these are radical questions that have to be asked. And on the one side, of course, you have uh, the intelligent design uh, group who who have made what to me I think is a very um, effective critique of modern evolutionary theory. Even though I don't subscribe to their ultimate uh, conclusion, because what they're what they're suggesting is something like um, a resurrected natural theology, and 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 uh, you know natural theology to biology is something akin to Newton's clock universe you know you, you have mm. a creator it's distant you know it's set up the mechanisms and, and then the whole thing goes and and natural theology had very much that same attitude you know it was that is that you know you 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 come across the the uh, the, the watch on the heath as William Paley said and this means there's a designer out there somewhere you know something like the Newtonian God and 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 you know to to me that's that's not solving the problem of where the design comes from it's just it's just pushing the designing agency uh, away from the living things themselves in other words it's another way in which uh, in which uh, um, the study of life is alienated from the phenomenon of life itself mm, and, mm, and, mm, and and of mm. course the other point of view is that well maybe the designing intelligence is something internal to the uh, to the phenomenon of life itself and and that's very much the uh, the approach that, that that I take, but it's trying to um, uh, build a scientific conversation around these principles of design. You know, acknowledging that these things are real, trying to understand where they come from, uh, trying to uh, do so in a way that nature tells us uh, what's going on, and and maybe that will you know open up a space for these two warring camps to actually find some common ground, or at least maybe the people who are caught between them, you know. Yeah. Yes. Might, might, might have some, uh, you know, some uh, a way of thinking about it differently. Well, when I first started discovering things like transposition and symbiogenesis and seeing how cells redesign themselves in real time, I was like, oh my word, how, how come nobody's told me about this? Yeah. Like this, this should be like, this should, this should be on the front page of the New York Times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at least 10 years ago, like, well, the intelligence design guys certainly weren't talking about it and, and neither were the hardcore Darwinists. And, and really, I, I did find that there was this whole middle space where if you weren't married to some extreme ideological um, thing that for whatever reason you just felt like you had to, that, that there was this whole area of expl exploration, um, which, you know, I, I, I can't imagine 
how you could do good medicine or design good drugs if you didn't acknowledge the ability for the cell to redesign itself or, it, or fight cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and, and uh, you know, the, this, um, uh, the, the uh, history of medicine, for example, is rife with, with uh, you know, very, uh, you know, scientifically sound, I'm using scare quotes here, therapies that are based upon the best science and, you know, all the experts agree and these kind of things. It's turned out to be totally wrong and, and, and you know, have, have probably killed more people than, than, uh, than, than they have saved. And, and, and you know it, it it goes all the way back to this notion of therapeutic bleeding in medieval science, for example. You know, good heavens! You know, look at the look at the the, the 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 widely accepted theory of how bodies work then, and and bleeding actually you know made some sense in that framework. But you know, it, it, it killed most people, and and we're running into the same kind of things now, especially with cognitive uh, therapies, you know, and, and uh, uh, medicinals that can. Uh, you know, uh, adjust the way the uh, the different parts of the brain work, and uh, of course, my favorite example is uh, is is the radical change in therapy for ulcers, and uh, and uh, uh, you know, for example, going from the ulcer is your fault because you're a type A personality and you eat eat, eat too much fatty foods, to the realization that uh, that uh, you know it, it's actually a bacterial infection, and all the mm. therapies, all the therapies that supposedly uh, you know would have worked in the former model actually you know turn out to be um, actually turn out to be totally counterproductive you know that, that all they do is actually facilitate the the bacterial infection that's causing the uh, causing the uh, ulcer and of course uh, you know we're getting into the similar kind of a thing with uh, our knowledge of, uh, of uh, diseases of the colon for example uh, mm. colitis. So, you know the, you know these are microbial um, uh, diseases you know these come from uh, some Something that's gone awry in the ongoing relationship and ongoing conversation between, you know, the cells that are descended from our zygote with all the other, uh, all the other uh, 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 passengers uh, on 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 this vehicle that that, uh, that is is us, you know, which is really not just us but a whole lot of other cells uh, as well. And so, this notion that uh, that um, you know there there there's more to learn. There's a middle way to uh, approach it is is absolutely true but if you look at the history of these things uh, you know it's a very very tough road you know if you if you mentioned symbiogenesis and of course this brings to mind Lynn Margulis who was who was one of the principal advocates for this and and uh, and one of the principal intellectual movers for it and you know she had an enormously difficult time you know trying to uh, trying to make a make her colleagues see what was just uh, you know so obvious to her and mm -hmm. of course barbara mcclintock had ran into similar issues with uh, transposing elements or transposable elements and genes and, uh, and and these kind of things and and they eventually make sense but it's a very tough road uh, to get there to get to acceptance and and you know this uh, i think reflects uh, 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 in an interesting way on the on the culture of science and uh, and how much uh, uh, importance we're willing to give science in quotes um, you know in in shaping our own culture for example and uh, uh, you know when you come to the evolution debate for example uh, you know some of the most incredible statements about you know how we should teach evolution in schools you know uh, come out from this from this basically very divisive way of thinking about it you know it's it's uh, well we can't talk about you know uh, these kinds of things because they belong over in this other kind of class and we can't talk about this here in biology because you know we're scientists and we don't admit these other things and and it leads to ultimately to um, I think a very destructive way of, of uh, teaching students uh, about evolution about a lot of things uh, uh, you know Lynn Margulis called it uh, intellectual apartheid you know that that what, that what you do is you take discipline and you build huge walls between them so that, you know, you can have <clears throat> a safe space for one discipline and then a safe space for another, but they don't talk to one another, you know, and, and, uh, and again, you know, this, this, this comes from this ongoing um, divide that's decades now between, uh, you know, different ways of looking at the world. And, yes. you know, is there some way that you can find a common language so that everyone can talk to one another? You know, I don't know. I hope so. 
that's the well, whole premise I, of my book, after all. My my observation is that it, it it's almost always outsiders who show up and go, who put this wall here? And who <laughs> put true. this wall here, right? I mean, you're basically, you're critiquing evolutionary theory from the perspective of a physiologist who studies termites, who is most emphatically not an evolutionary biologist. In fact, I think it was Ray Noble said, evolution is too important to leave to the evolutionary biologists. <laughs> and and what, what I think is, is really ironic is evolutionary biology has been one of the most resistant fields to evolving of like, <laughs> of any field. And I've, I've I've consulted yeah. in 300 industries. I mean, I've never uh -huh. seen anything quite like it. Um, yeah. But yeah. Then, then, then you go just outside. You, ju you go just outside those walls. And you find people doing an enormous, like Dennis Noble gave a keynote a couple months ago to, I don't know how many physiologists, he's the president of the Physiology Association. And they're all like, preach it, brother. We, we love this new version of <laughs> yeah. evolution. And of course, it's very friendly. Like it's not trying to alienate anybody. It's like, hey, life yeah. is doing what life is doing. Well, last question before we go. Um, are you finding any difference between the conversations with it, among biologists that are allowed to happen in public being different than the ones you have in private when you when you talk about your book and we um like if if you take away the political correctness police is is there a difference in what people are willing to embrace and talk about I think so. You know, I think it's very hopeful. And actually, I think it's a very exciting time to be a biologist right now because I think we're in 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 um, the midst of a of a transition toward realism, uh, realism about what life is uh, now. And and uh, I just want to give you an anecdote, and it's related to my second book. I'm not trying to flog my second book here, but but oh, it, please flog it. It's fine. Uh, okay, I'll flog it. It's called <laughs> "The Tinkerer's Accomplice," and there was it was explained about the problem of biological design again uh, you know approach from my uh, perspective as a physiologist and and uh, uh, that had the unfortunate uh, fate of, of coming out just at about the time the the or in the aftermath of the Dover trial and oh. and, and uh, you know the the, the uh, subtitle of, of the book was how design emerges from life itself and and just that word in there you know caused all kinds of interesting difficulties. Uh, uh, we had people who refused to uh, review the book. They were accusing me of being a shill for the Discovery Institute. Uh, uh, you know, there, there were some uh, rather strange things that uh, went on. For example, I, I, there was one instance where uh, I know I left behind some uh, very angry faculty members at a university where I gave a seminar on, on this thing because, you know, we can't have intelligent design, you know, at our, at our uh, seminar program. And so there's a lot of that um, uh, stuff going on, and, and uh, it was an example of the way that you know conversations don't happen. But the uh, people that I've run the book by, uh, colleagues who I have to admit I was a little bit nervous about putting it in front of them because I thought that the, I might get the same reaction for, to, to this book. But it's been very, very positive and very open, and and uh, uh, in fact some of the some of the more um, uh, strident uh, things that have been expressed to me about purpose and desire haven't come from my professional colleagues. They've come, as usual, from, you know, internet trolls that, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, put on comments and they obviously have not read the book and haven't given much thought or, you know, are interested in, uh, you know, extending outside the thought bubble. But, you know, so far it's been very, very positive. Uh, and, uh, and so maybe things are, are changing, you know. It's helped along, I think, by um, the fact that there's a growing realization amongst evolutionary biologists that, that our standard model for Darwinian evolution, namely gene selectionism, doesn't really uh, help explain much. And, and, uh, and there's this vast territory of, of things that, uh, that maybe can be explained by, uh, by bringing in these, 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 uh, these uh, uh, formerly um, squishy ideas like intentionality and purposefulness, you know, things that had not been allowed to be part of the discourse for many, many years. So I'm hopeful. I'm hoping it's going to be well-received. Mainly, I want to start conversations. Well, I, I, I think that's the whole thing. And, and um, you know, I, I think some, some of this, uh, you know, clinging to the reductionist uh, mindset, I, I think there's an element of 
uh, almost like worshiping at the altar of exact answers. I mean, I, I get, I understand physics and the like, I'm an electrical engineer. I understand physics really well and it's incredibly precise. And you know, it's not anywhere near as easy to like understand my wife, <laughs> you know, right? Don't tell, don't tell your or, wife. <laughs> or, well, she knows it. She'll be the okay. first to tell you, right? right yeah. Or, or you know, or, or, or you're, or boy, you know, how do I, how do I get the cats to quit peeing every time somebody leaves a towel in the bathroom or yeah. something? Like, you know, these are these are a lot harder problems to solve than physics. And like biology is, it's it's just harder. It's like it's um and and another comment about like like it's it's the trolls that are causing the problem it's not really professionals i found when when i um when i got ready to launch my evolution prize i had to go get some judges and what i found was uh and i found this in general that that the higher you go in the accomplishment level and the um, the more open people are to different ways of twisting the Rubik's Cube. I My observation is that if you go to a junior college someplace um, where the professors are, are, are marginal, you're likely to get really militant kind of Richard Dawkins-like reactions to stuff. But, you know, I've got, uh, I've got people on, on my team like Dennis Noble and George Church mm-hmm. and, and and so on and like they're not afraid of controversy they're not afraid of completely different ways they're they're inviting you know when when dennis did his uh meeting at the royal society last year i mean he brought in the british academy and he had all of these people from anthropology and sociology and you know it was like hey we we need as many views of this thing as we could possibly get and i i just think um i found that that there is definitely a place now i don't know if it even exists five years ago but it definitely exists now where you can have some wonderful conversations um yeah i think it is uh, it is changing i i've, I've noticed the uh, i've noticed a, a a difference in climate from the time the tinkerer's accomplice was published to now um um in evolutionary biology for example a lot of these really interesting conversations are are happening around the, mm. the, the 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 uh the the new theory of niche construction you know which which mm-hmm. uh, even though the the major proponents of niche construction don't want to admit it it actually opens the door for bringing uh, um you know purposeful agency back into the evolutionary process and i've been invited to a few of those conferences and i've also been invited to a few intelligent uh, design conferences just because yeah. I, I want to get to know these guys and figure out how mm-hmm. they think and mm-hmm. things like this and and there, there are interesting conversations emerging and and uh, and i think a more open attitude and now it's just a matter of you know continuing to explore continuing to ask and uh, as you say you know have have conversations where conversations weren't possible before and if i had to point to one uh, hope that i have for the book is it will start opening up those conversations well i want to encourage everybody pick up a copy of purpose and desire at your local bookstore or amazon uh by j scott turner um uh lots of interesting little stories and angles and his uh it clearly took you a long time to write this this was not this is not some 12-month project obviously no no i started it on my last sabbatical actually in cambridge in 2010 and it's gone well, through about five different complete rewrites since then you know so it was very much a it was very much a a, a, a long-term project and uh, yes i'm really glad it's published now yeah well skillfully written very intriguing well thanks for doing what you're doing congratulations on making termites interesting to regular folks like (laughs) us and uh, thanks for your time today thanks so much perry it was a it was a delightful conversation until next time this is the evolution 2.0 podcast bridging science technology business and the big questions To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.